0: My guest today is New York Times bestselling author of The Postmistress, Sarah Blake, whose new novel, The Guest Book, was published in May. Sarah will be coming to Winston-Salem for this year's Bookmarks Festival of Books and Authors on September 5th through 8th, and will be on a panel I'm moderating on September 7th. Sarah, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: As you'll find out soon enough, um, one of the 10 standard short answer questions that we ask every guest at the end of the show is, what kind of book would you like to write but probably never will? And it's been interesting that the most common answer to that question from other authors is a multi-generational family saga, which is exactly what you've chosen to write with the guest book. Why did you want to write a book like this, and what gave you the courage to undertake what a lot of other authors are sort of hesitant to go after?
1: Well, (laughs) that's so funny. Um, I don't know. You know, I have always wanted to write that kind of big, juicy, multi-generational thing where, you know, you're flipping back and forth um, in time and watching the echoes of of family history build. I mean, I I really wanted to see if I could tackle something like um, the Foresight Saga or Isabel Allende's *House of Spirits*, um, because I love the ways in which um, the resonances in history are often um, travel forward without our necessarily being able to see them. And one of the things that it seems like um, big family novels do is, as as do historical novels, they show us this sort of through lines between past and present, and that's, that's the terrain that I, um, all three of my novels in some way are, um, are are sort of navigating. Like, how is it that the past is still the present? How is it that we're carrying on things um, about our parents or or grandparents or about our country's history without our knowing it? And what what would it look like if that knowledge were um, be able to be seen? And, and I, I love the sort of huge, delicious meatiness, too, of usually big family novels have tons of secrets and, um, and revelations and um, abandonments and betrayals that are only seen to the reader, which I think is um, one of the great satisfactions of them.
0: So you have, uh, one of the things I think must be a challenge in a novel like this is the, the simple question of where to begin. Uh, and there's a, and there's sort of a related question, which is then in what order do you, do you tell all this information to the, to the readers? How, how did you decide about those two things? First of all, where do you start? And second of all, you know, kind of how do you proceed in order?
1: yeah that's and yeah that's that 's just generally hard in um anyway I think in in terms of any novel, like where do you put your oar in? where do you start you know stroking forward but in this novel um the there's a scene that comes really pretty much in the middle of the novel where a woman is uh standing in penn station um i and she 's looking out in a crowd and she sees a man walking across. Um, the The station, and I just started writing that scene. Um, she was interesting to me i wasn 't sure who she was. Um, I knew she was probably somebody in this family that I was going to be writing about and um, that uh, then that was sort of the first thing, so that kind of started the family and what their secrets might be, um, because of something that happens in that, in that scene and, and the man and she come to meet each other, um, by accident. So, um, for me, it's, I always start with a character doing something and then, um, the book sort of, uh, goes from there. The, the actual beginning, the beginning, the very first chapter, um, of this novel, which is set the, the novel moves from the 30s to the 50s to the present back and forward back and forth um, all the time, so it begins the first chapter now begins in the 30s, and that was written very, very late in the writing process because I wanted to give the character around whom it centers um, a sort of uh, deepening and complicating um, tragedy so but that was something that once I understood what I was building, I could start to slot in the, the parts. And so beginning became, was expe- you know, it was expedience that put the actual beginning where I put it.
0: Right. right. I find it interesting how, I, I think in my writing, and I've had this conversation with others so often, the very first thing that the reader reads is either the very first thing that I wrote or the very last thing that I wrote yeah. uh, because you have to yeah. kind of come to an understanding. Either you, you jumped off in the right place or you go back and you look, okay, now I know what this novel is about and I know how to, how to enter and how the reader needs to enter into it.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I feel like that's the thing. It's like the hard, one of the hardest things is to really stick close to that idea that the story is what you are, your allegiance is to. You know, so you yeah. have to listen for it, you know, and not get in its way.
0: So, I know this is a big question to ask for such a sweeping novel like this, but can you briefly tell us what The Guest Book is about?
1: Yeah. The guest book is about an old, um, it's about an old money family that's run out of its money, but not its sense of place. And, um, it moves back and forth in time from the 30s to the 50s to the present, following three generations as, the consequences of a um of a single night in nineteen thirty six traveled down through the family sort of untold um, you know as the as one generation carries uh what it doesn 't know forward into into the present and it centers on um it moves back in place back and forth in time, but it stays in place It's it sort of centers in this family's um, island off the coast of Maine, which is their summer house, which is very much the kind of um, the place that binds and defines them. It's the the place that gives the Miltons, which is the name of the family, their kind of um, mythos. But it's also the place that holds their secrets, mm-hmm. and that um, that you know that the landscape and the house that where something happened, that um, characters either knowingly or or unknowingly walk around the scene of, of something that happened there. So the ways in which landscape and places both keep us and also can undo us, they, can, they keep our memory the way that houses do. And I, I really wanted to try and write a novel that worked the way that... Um, Tom Stoppard's play Arcadia, work, oh, yeah, which is, yeah. um, you know, and very much that, that notion that um, you are literally watching echoes and patterns build in front of you the resonances where you have you know a family that the play moves back and forth literally in in time scene to scene a hundred years apart the same family but the set is one room so you're watching characters pick up the same teacups without knowing you know go to the same windows look out like again the the ways in which history and and the pathos of history is just um accruing in front of you so so um
0: would you, sort would, what it's <laughs> would you read us a short passage from the book?
1: Oh, sure. Um, why don't I read the very, very beginning? This is, the, this is a prologue right before we get into um, the actual uh, meat of it. It's the usual story the man at the tiller reflected regarding the beautiful derelict on the hill. At the end of old money, there is real estate. There were three of them in the boat that Saturday in June. They had set out from Rockland, Maine, on a day's sail into the bay, and tacking into a cove of one of the many granite islands eight or nine miles offshore, had come face to face with the great white house before them, some sea captain's pride, sitting squarely on top of a long lawn leading down to a boathouse and dock. The house needed paint. The lawn needed cutting. The boathouse roofline sagged and the shingles slipped. Empty of boats, the dock in front of them had been patched and patched again. It was magnificent. I'm waiting for it to go up for sale, the host of the weekend went on. Low-hanging fruit. Whose is it? The man sitting beside him asked. One of those families who used to run the world. The host stretched his legs, pressing his bare feet against the boat's hull. Wasps. Wasps? the other chuckled. Do they even exist anymore except in their own heads? <laughs> the host smiled. He had just made a fortune in health care. What happened? The man beside him asked. The usual, I suspect, drinking, apathy, dullards in the gene pool. What's their name? Don't know, the host jimmied the boom. Milton? The Miltons? Milton. The third man, the man in the bow who had been staring up at the house all this while, turned around. As in Milton Higginson, the bankers? Sounds right, answered the host, pulling the mainsail in so the wind caught, sending them on an angle out of the cove and back into the channel, running with the wind along the coastline of the island. The sailors fell into companionable silence, punctuated by the host's ready about and hard to lee." calling them to shift their weight from one side of the Harashoff to the other, leaving room for the boom to sail unchecked over their heads. It's one of those tragic families, I think, he said, as they reached the end of the island's granite spine. They say somebody drowned there. Where? Just there, off those rocks, the host pointed to a mound of white granite boulders humped high above the waterline, backed by a ridge of spruce rising into the sky. There was nothing to see. Ready about the man at the tiller said, and they tacked away.
0: Hmm. What a great opening! <laughs>
1: uh,
0: so early in the novel, there's a there's a tragic event in the Milton family, which I'm not going to tell readers what it is because I want them to discover it. Um, but the family sort of decides, and I'm, and I'm quoting and slightly paraphrasing here, um, as they move forward, they say, best not to mention it, best not to dwell on it. Some things were better left mm-hmm. unsaid. And, mm-hmm. you know, it reminded me of my own family. When my mother died at the age of 29, her father almost never mentioned her for the rest of his life. Why yeah. do the Miltons refuse to discuss this tragedy?
1: Well, I suspect it's Probably quite similar to your family. I mean, this was my family. This is something absolutely that was the kind of ethos that I grew up in, which is that um, you know, you you but some some things are better off left unsaid, and um, that you just would carry forward. It would it all it does um, talking about something that hurtful or that sad just. It um, doesn't do any good, it just uh, makes everybody feel bad, it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, so the, I definitely was raised in the kind of ethos that silence is both, you know, is going to be the best way to um, achieve harmony, but also the way to just move forward. And, of course, I mean, one of the things that, that the book does, um, or, you know, that I'm hoping it does, is show what that kind of silence um, carried forward, you know what the fruits of that silence are. Um, how it both perpetuates a, a system that then, or a family that um, can expect itself to be, you know, um, continue to be in power. It can. It carries racism and anti-Semitism that this family is just sort of passing on unthinkingly. Um, all of the ways in which silence works and works against. Um, any kind of um, moving forward or opening up things that are that are in a good way. So I was, I'm very, very, um, I'm very uh, fascinated by silence and its fruits.
0: Do you think that kind of silence is more rampant? I mean, the Mil- the, Mil- the Miltons obviously are even beyond upper class. They're they're you know above what most of us can imagine. But do you think that that type of silence is more rampant in the upper classes where there's this sort of emphasis on you know, manners and etiquette and protocol and all those sorts of things?
1: I I do. Um, I mean, and that's, again, that's sort of my experience. It's also the ways in which I think silence, um, I mean, when you have families like that that operate on those code of silence, it's you know, it's seen as bad manners to mention anything that might be ugly or awful. And, of course, then that's a way that, Um, the ways in which you might be complicit or you might, you know, the way in which you might pay attention to things that are ugly or awful, it keeps you protected from it. So um, that, you know, silence is 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 a sort of great grease for something to continue unchallenged and for power to be kept hold of and for families to continue to just carry on. So, um, I think that there's a link between that kind of uh, aristocracy and, you know, in this case, Caesar, this is the kind of family that, you know, has been here since the Mayflower and had used to run the world, as that host um, said, but is not any longer. So manners becomes a way of holding on to the kind of illusion that they're still um, in control. And, and mm-hmm. what does it look like when that control slips?
0: I can't help but thinking when I when I think about the Milton family. I mean, you, we just heard a character describe them as a one of those tragic families, uh, mm-hmm. and I think about this. You know, recently again, the highly publicized death of yet another member of the Kennedy family.
1: Yeah.
0: Why do you think America has been always so fascinated, specifically by the tragedies of the rich and the powerful? Yeah,
1: it's a good question. Um, I mean, I. I I don't know, I don't know, you know, my, my sort of gut reaction is just like, as always, there's the kind of, um, you know, the um, schadenfreude of being able to watch the downfall of people who are above you, or mm-hmm. who, you know, the, the sort of, the, the, it seems, the kind of um, characteristically human mix of envy and the desire to punish, you know, those you envy. I, I don't know, I mean, that you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, It's the spectacle, isn't it? But both of the great riches and, you know, the sort of quasi-divine of, of, you know, where we put people who make it, quote-unquote, in this country, but then also bringing them down. It's that, you know.
0: Let's talk about your present-day protagonist, um, Evie. She's the one who is you know, the most, uh, living in pretty much in the, in the current time, she's trying to uncover secrets about her family. Tell us a little bit about her and why it is that she's decided to dig into her family's hidden history.
1: Well, so Evie is a, she's a, um, feminist, uh, medieval scholar. She's a, um, history professor at NYU. Um, she married a Jewish man and, um, so she, and she thinks of herself, at this point, she's sort of somewhere, maybe, you know, around 50. She has a 24 year old son, or no, she has a high school age son. And, um, she and her, and Paul, her husband is an English professor. So they are living, um, which she would characterize as a very, very different life from the life that she, that her mother, um, Joan, who's the sort of protagonist of the fifties generation, or her grandmother Kitty, um, the thirties, and and um, and yet she's also steeped in um, sort of women's lives and and um, the ways in which women's lives often speak. Certainly, historically, women's lives speak. Um, without the kind of official sanction of speech, you know they, they speak in the in artifacts or in archives um, and she uh, her mother has just died, and she 's very very um clear that a woman just slipped away whom she had she really had no idea who her mother truly was and, and so I think there's she 's at a point in her life where she wants to come to the um, come to terms with the silence that is in that she's grown up with around her mother as well as understanding that there's a lot that she doesn't really understand. Um, you know, she's just, she's going to bury someone and she doesn't know who she's burying. And that's added to you by two things. I mean, that sense of wanting to get to the bottom of her family or, or at least her, her you know, her mother. And one of which is that her mother, um, Before she dies says that she wants to be buried at the end of the island, you know, the island that I just read from, and she wants to be buried under a stone that only says here. So, that's the kind of, um, like, not her name, not the date, not anything. So... Um, Evie, you know, being a historian, but also, I mean, that that's the kind of gesture that was inexplicable to her. Her mother never seemed to be capable of anything that um, sort of dramatic or symbolic. And then coupled with that, um, her husband, Paul, has just come back from a fellowship in Berlin where he's uncovered a photograph that um, shows her grandfather, seems to show her grandfather, having a picnic um, with some Nazis. And that—that that is, just, you know, so the question about that and what that means um, is something that obviously she wants to get to the bottom of.
0: Mm-hmm. I love this idea about women's voices who in past generations have been silenced in one way or another, still speaking to us through documents, through artifacts. Um, you know, I, as I said, my mother died very young and I ended up Doing something sort of like what Evie does, trying to find out more about who she was because nobody ever talked about her, and writing a book about it. And it was amazing to me how much, even in her short life, how many footprints there were. Yeah. Um, Whether it was you know tax records or school records or you know yearbook inscriptions, and then you go find the people who were in the yearbook, and that you know. Uh, So it really sort of made me understand. Yeah, as you said, how those how those voices who maybe didn't speak loudly in, in their generation, can nonetheless be heard.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I feel like that's one of the things, too, about the ways in which objects and houses often are the kind of... Um, You know, they're sort of amplifiers for people who may not have been able to find their voice or their speech, you know, and that, I don't know about you, but I I, I love old houses for just seeing, I mean, all of the stories that are possibly in there and thinking about them, and then when you hear about, you know, the people in them, it just, it sets off all kinds of um, possibilities, Yeah. yeah. So
0: tell us about speaking of old houses tell us about the island and tell us if you did you spend time in Maine and work on on the book there and what what is
1: um well just to, you know full disclosure my family does have uh, an island off the coast of Maine not anything this grand or um you know sort of basically that not anything this grand but um so and and um the my first novel was also set um on A kind of amalgam of that island, um, this is off the coast of rockland mid coast maine so for like in some ways, the truest thing in this book um, is the is the setting is the place mm-hmm. so and and for me always that landscape these the the sort of um, the, the rock of that island has always been um, what kind of, uh, I think in some ways, tutored my imagination. That's the landscape I return to. That's where I find the most um, inspiration. And then to also have grown up in a, um, to be able to go to a place that um, where I you know re- where I repeat every year um, from the time I was born, and where generations before me were also there. So around a table, I would be sitting listening to four generations. I mean, that kind of you know that's what I think made me a writer. Yeah. So, um, so the the you know the the um, as I say the the story of this novel, the the novel novel, the things that are happening are made up, but the. Um, but the landscape and the rituals and the kinds of things that might happen—the the sailing um, and the—are um, are from my. I mean, I do know them yeah.
0: very well. Yeah. It strikes me. I mean, obviously, there's a there's a personal reason why you chose an island off the coast of Maine, and maybe this the setting caused the story to develop in this way. But it seems to me that it's just kind of this perfect. Uh, way to set a story that is both about beauty and danger. I mean, I think about the main coast, and I think about how gorgeous it is and how, you know, you can hit a rock and your boat goes down at any minute. And yeah. it, it, to, to me, it feels like those two things are kind of, uh, you know, causing attention in the novel that works really well.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think the also just the, you know, the... Um, the notion of what an island is, it's a place both of, you know, retreat, but also, you know, the double-edged sword of what that kind the retreat that is, gives relief and solace, and also the retreat that is the hallmark of a kind of isolation, yeah. you know, yeah. that, again, in terms of the beauty and danger that, I mean, the island really served. Um, I mean, I started to realize how, um, how widely it could serve as a, as a kind of um, useful symbol. Yeah.
0: There's a great line when the family first sees the island, and I think it's Kitty says, um, what would anyone do with a place like this? And Ogden replies, own it. Why does Ogden feel the need, do you think, to own things, and in particular to own uh, things like islands that are going to be there long after he's gone?
1: Well, he's very much again, I, I would say he's very much a um man of his times and his class. I mean he's used to when he's introduced, um, you know, he's in Germany, he's investing in Germany because he believes that that will um prevent the mad you know, the madness that's going on in the thirties, that good men and capital um will, you know, Offset any kind of world instability. So he's and he's, you know, he was raised to run the country as as you know Roosevelt. He's part of that class of men. And at one point, um, he's described as saying, you know, he um, there. His was the generation for um, the last of when the givens were given, when it was you know just going to be what he expected was going to be true. And so he's very much um, of the time and place that is. Uh, thinks nothing of buying an island in order to set up a legacy and to create, you know, this is, he says, I want this to be the Milton place, the place that stands for us. And, yeah. you know, um, he sees kingdoms and can afford them as well as sees or sees himself as being incredibly well-meaning and, um and, you know, he's, he uses his power to the good um, as he sees it. Um, and so it makes sense that he would also buy an incredibly beautiful piece of property that would be an expression of all that was good in, you know, in his eyes. And,
0: and I think the, the fact, too, that it's this, this rock
1: of an island. Yeah. I
0: mean you almost I mean of course you just read us the prologue where we know, you know, ultimately the island is going to is going to outlive the family. We know but you know that sort of as soon as you see something like that I I bought a piece of property not long ago up in the North Carolina mountains. It's about 5 acres of just rugged forest and I'm walking around in there and I thought it's silly. The whole concept that I own this is just silly. These are trees that have yeah. been here long before I was born and these same trees yeah. will be here after I'm gone and Anybody who wants to can come walk around on it. It's it's just a foolish thing to call this ownership.
1: You know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And speaking of the peccadillos of ownership, early in the book, Ogden Milton's friend Harry Lowell says the frontier for a better world must stake itself in the necessary undoing of the money making classes. Now he means this as a as a communist statement. Um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but given the current divide between rich and poor in the United States, do you think there's something deeper than the politics of the 1930s that the readers might gain from Harry's attitude? Um,
1: deeper in what way? I I, um, I mean I think his his the The sort of um and Ogden points this out, I mean Harry is a lol and he's saying this in the you know in the Harvard Club, um, yeah, yeah. but he does believe passionately he is you know one of the um, men in the thirties who absolutely believes that the communism can save um the world, um as did so many you know um the idealism this is sort of before Stalin um yeah. really was what it was was clear so um I don't know other than that sense of like we need to completely smash the system in order to you know make something new but
0: But I think it's also What do you
1: what do you think? <laughs> well,
0: I mean I, I I think when we see things like Jeffrey Epstein and we see things like anger towards billionaires, yeah. you know, you you start to hear some of this same kind of um uh kind of rhetoric and I just think yes, that, I find true. it interesting. I think in in this day and age it would be hard to find somebody as economically conservative as Ogden Milton, being friends right. with somebody as economically liberal as as Harry Lowell. You know, and, and I, That's I, true. I, I like that. I like that friendship. I think it works. You know,
1: but it. You know, again, don't forget this is. You know, it's are friends born. I mean, of class. Right. Exactly. So yeah. I think yeah. um, that kind of class alliance is has definitely. Um, I would think, has vanished. You know, there's a the, the sort of sense of who would have been in that room at the Harvard Club in 1935. Um, there, You know, one can be a, an avowed communist, and the other can be an avowed capitalist, but they're both you know, Harvard class of 23. Right, and they're, right. you know, a Lowell and a Milton. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, but I do think, you know, the, the calls, I, I guess one of the things that I, you know, certainly when I was writing the book and, you know, the ways in which the overlaps of the 30s and now, I mean, you know, I am so not alone in pointing that out. But the more I was writing it, the more, or the more, as I was writing it, it seemed I was writing it even further into the way in which um, the echoes were repeating. And especially this real, um, this huge cry for, you know, a progressive, Um, change, you know, the question of do you change the system from without or from within in order to address those, um, the imbalance both racially and um, economically. I mean, we're definitely in another kind of, I would, I think, um, upheaval or, you know, um, sort of uh, um, cataclysm that the 30s was also showing. And do you think that, that
0: you think Evie, and I mean, in a sense, not just Evie, but but us, and by us I mean Educated, economically comfortable people who can sit around and read thick novels. Um, do you think we're getting the point where, as Evie does to a certain extent, we sort of feel that we are in some way complicit with the evil of past generations, especially because those generations, for instance, built the universities that educated us and right. created the publishing industry that that you know yep. allows us to read these novels and this sort of thing.
1: I do. Yeah. I mean, I do think that's the moment we're in. We're in a moment of um, more and more people um re-seeing um the the ways in which, you know, the hist- our history is told and constructed and what that means, what, you know, again, the through line between past and present. I mean, yeah. and and you know, Brian Stevenson has pointed that out, Baldwin pointed it out. I mean, it's been it's right there and I feel like I feel anyway that this is a moment where um, more and more people are coming to see just what that looks like, just how that is you know how the structures of the past are you know right now in the present they're not mm-hmm. they're not dead i mean it was Obama in two thousand eight who said you know who invoked Faulkner when he was um, speaking about race and and his candidacy and said, you know the past isn't dead, it isn't even past yeah. i mean he he was you know, explicitly drawing our attention to the through line and the ways in which we needed to see what his candidacy would trigger. Um, And I feel like that's only gotten more and more and more um, sort of broadly, you know, understood. I mean, I'm reading Jill Lepore right now, These Truths, which is a, you know, her... um, sort of revision of American history and where it puts front and center the um, as foundational the institution of slavery and the idea of freedom, which is a new idea, you know, to put those two completely together, that that's the way this country. And I think that's more and more, um, again, that would be the way that you would start to see through lines. So, yeah, I think we are definitely, um, so back, you know, to your question of complicity, it's, you know, how is it that we, um, yeah, How have we been willfully blind?
0: (laughs) On on the one hand, as we've been talking about, the the guest book is a novel about a kind of gilded wealth that most of us can only imagine. It's a a Downton Abbey-style costume drama full of lush details, but it also deals with, again, issues of great relevance. And you you mentioned racism. Talk a little bit about how the issue of racism is handled in the novel.
1: Oh, well, so... um, so in the, in the generation that's the 1950s, um, which takes place, um, that story just plays out over a summer in 1959. And um, it's the children of Kitty and Ogden, who are the ones who buy the island um, in the 30s. Um, in 1959, their children, Joan and Moss, and Evelyn um, it sort of tracks them over the summer. Joan is the eldest and she um, is working for uh, she's found herself a, a, a job for pin money as she says her brother Moss um, who is he's destined at the end of the summer to go work for his father and the family's um, investment bank but he is actually a musician he's a jazz musician and is trying and wants more than anything. To be able to just um, be that, to be a musician, and um, into, and then Evelyn is the is the younger one, um, and into that uh, group comes. Um, Len Levy, who is the second Jewish man that Ogden, uh, Milton, their father, hires to, um, work at the firm, and his best friend, an African American writer named Reg Pauling, who's just returned from reporting in, um, in Europe and is now back in, um, New York and he's, um, He's working for um, a publishing company as a copy editor, but he's also taking photographs. He he was um, taking photographs of sort of interactions he has with people on the street. And by chance, Len and Ma and Reg um, come to a party of Mosses one night in Manhattan. And turns out Reg was in Mosses' class at Harvard, the lone black man in the class of uh, nineteen. Fifty-three, and um, so they the the a, a friendship sort of ensues, and um, Len and Joan also are connected. So the ways in which um, sort of um, these Len and, and Reg enter into this world, and then. Um, I won't say much more, but um, they do appear, um, and they are kind of foundational to what happens in the 50s on the island.
0: Um, One of your epigrams comes from the great African-American writer James Baldwin, who wrote, People are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. And Evie kind of echoes this sentiment when she's talking to her students and she said, history is in us, our history lives in us. But then she goes on to say something, which I love. She says, lean low and listen. That's your job. Mm. Not that they had lived, but how. And I think that mm. sentiment, not that they had lived, but how, like we could just make that the motto of people who write historical novels. You know? um, <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you feel like that sort of credo has, has played out in your own work?
1: Um, I, oh, I! I'm so glad you read that. I sort of have forgotten it. It's, it's um, I, I more than anything, I'm so aware of just how alive um, people are, and you know, people in the past, and just um, so I think more than anything, when I um, write a historical novel, it's its that. It's that I get lost in the details of the life in order to really fully, as much as I can, bring just the sort of um, living human being that existed and that... Um, you know what, what it would look like, what it would feel like, given the constraints of the time period. Who would you be as a as a human, you know, as a human being, and and how would you have have behaved? How would you have responded to the situation? I mean, that's been um, that's been the fun for me of trying to, in some senses, I'm doing what um, what you were describing. You know, um, with you, with your mother and what Evie certainly is is doing, which is like, how do you make these Um, lives alive, and, and, you know, how do you bring them onto the page? So the how people live is, I mean, that's where you see human beings being, not just, you know, what, what, you know, that they lived from 1910 to 1940 or whatever it is, but what did that look like? What did it feel like? That's, you know, that just seems... um, Completely enticing to me and to my imagination.
0: My wife talks about that a lot because her father is really into genealogy, and so he will say, mm. "You know, this this person was related to us," or this. And she says, "Well, who were they? You know, not I don't, yeah, just exactly. want to know what was on the gravestone." Um, and that sort of brings up the the fact that that the guest book is at least in part, maybe two thirds, um, is a historical novel, and you provide the kind of detail. About people's ordinary lives that you you just can't find in a history book. Um, it's one of the things that I think historical novels can be good at. Exactly what we were just talking about. What what's your research process like? That how do you find out what daily life was like in the 1930s or in the 1950s for this particular slice of society?
1: I just um, I just read and read and read, and I watch as many movies from the time as I can. Not necessarily movies about that time, but um, made in the time. You know, yeah, I, I try yeah. and steep myself in the culture of you know the contemporaneous culture to whichever time period I'm doing. And I um, my novel, The Postmistress, which um, you know came out a while ago, was set in '41. But in order to do that, I did so much research about. Um, sort of, you know, the lead up to World War II, and then, um, and then definitely the forties. As I was trying to figure out when to set it, so the I knew that in some ways I wanted to return more deeply to the thirties because it just seemed such a um, such an incredibly foundational um, decade. And um, so I had done some research there, but not necessarily in America, mostly in in Germany. Um, and so, so th- so I sort of dove down there i had i had a kind of foundation there but i i went further and i i read a lot of um i I read a lot of newspapers um from the time and magazines look at images um and you know i was reading um you know eb white and i mean as many writers that were writing about manhattan in the 30s as i could um and then similarly the 50s same Um, Although that was something, um, and and a lot of history about specifically 1959, I wanted to set it um, right on the cusp, which is always an interesting time. I mean, all my novels are never sort of full on in the middle of, you know, the action. It's always like right before the action or on the side of the action. So, 59, you know, it was still the decade, you know, as they say, that it, elect, that it you know, elected Eisenhower twice, but in 59, the pill was in um, production. There was all this stuff that was happening under the surface yeah. but hadn't exploded out yet, and that, to me, was really interesting. Betty Friedan was writing The Feminine Mystique. There was every, it was just about to blow. And so I was interested in that, like really trying under. it it was a time that was before everybody knew they were in a historical moment. So what would that look like? So, for example, Moss and Reg's um, relationship, um, they're very, very close. But, again, it's it's incipient and, you know, all the ways in which things could and couldn't be said because they hadn't been – you know, they hadn't been given voice yet. There wasn't a a norm anymore culturally to say – you know what you wanted or
0: who you were as a so yeah i love those uh, that idea of setting things on the uh, as you say on the cusp um that actually yeah. the, the last guest we had on the show wrote a novel that was set in 1959 and um ah. and i think we've had at least one other that was set in sort of 5960 in that you know sort of getting into the civil rights era, but still sort of early in it. Um, yeah. and, and then also what you said about newspapers. I uh, My novel coming out next year is set in New York in the first part of the 20th century, also kind of on the cusp of things. Um, and newspapers were great, and, and the advertisements. Yeah. I found the advertisements yeah. as, as good a window into life as almost anything else.
1: Um, Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more because it's like there is the picture of both like what – you know, what people are supposed to desire, what they may not even know that they desire yet. Like, you know, just the ways in which image and, you know, value is being just projected and exactly. Yeah, I, and I, I know, I agree. I think
0: nobody understands, you know, the psychology of the masses probably better than people who are advertising products. <laughs> so, um,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: There's something that Evie says in her first scene that really struck with me. Um, she says, metaphor was for the young. Oh, yeah. Can you explain what that means to her, and and what it means to you, for that matter?
1: Well, I don't know how old you are, but I'm I'm definitely at a certain age where I feel like um, there's a way in which talk is just is just talk and I get um I'm I'm I think Evie certainly was um she's very aware of what's going on as she's aging with her body and with what's happened um with her you know, who she is in the world and so the idea that metaphors for the young, that metaphor the the ways in which language can be used to um you know to Um, insight and to, you know, to create sort of passion by um, symbols and um, is something that she is getting more and more impatient with. She just wants to get to the bottom of things. Yeah, yeah.
0: We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same ten questions. You should be able to answer each of them. They're all very short answer questions. Uh, Sometimes people just say one word. But hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into you as a writer and as a person. So if you're ready, we will begin.
1: Okay.
0: What word do you love to work into your writing? Tilt. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing?
1: I uh, said, like I often, I get really hung up on the way people do the tag for dialogue.
0: Yeah, yeah. Where's your favorite place to write?
1: In my study, looking out into the trees.
0: Where could you never write?
1: In a coffee shop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Commas. What was the first book you remember reading?
1: What comes to mind is The Water Babies, which oh, yeah. is a very weird yeah. book from, you know, the 20s. Because um, we had a lot of books on the shelf that were um, sort of random and strange but beautiful at the same time. <laughs> what are you reading now? Well, right now I'm reading um, uh, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, oh, gosh, uh, Railroad yeah. at the same time as I'm reading Joel Lepore's These Truths. Yeah.
0: What book would you like to have written?
1: I would love to have written To the Lighthouse.
0: What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will?
1: I know, and you gave me the heads up that this was coming. <laughs> and I'm all this whole time, I've been like, what would I say? I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe I'd like to write something that, um, uh, this is going to sound weird, but like that's both sort of hard-boiled and Hemingway. I'd love to try and figure out how to write something in sentences that are really uh, short, clipped, and um, you know, I don't know, projective. I don't, I don't, I don't know. And and so maybe like like a hard-boiled novel. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be kind of interested in that.
0: And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you
1: that they um, that they got lost in my book and they came back mm. um, seeing with new eyes.
0: This has been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, including this year's 15th annual festival of books and authors on September 5th through 8th, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Sarah Blake, whose novel The Guest Book is available wherever books are sold. And Sarah will be happy to sign a copy for you when she appears at the Bookmarks Festival on September 7th. Sarah, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me. What a great conversation.
0: Inside the Writer Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. In the next few episodes, I'll be talking to more writers who are coming to this year's Bookmarks Festival. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.